0: The FT.
1: Welcome to World Weekly with me, Gideon Rachman. This week, have European leaders done enough to save Greece and the Eurozone?
2: About 160% of GDP debt levels in Greece. Almost everyone who's a serious economist who looks at that says that is unsustainable. There is no way, unless Greece becomes the next China in terms of economic growth, that they're going to be able to pay off that debt.
1: David Cameron struggles to contain the threat from the News of the World phone hacking scandal.
3: I have an old-fashioned view about innocent until proven guilty. (laughs) But if it turns out I've been lied to, that would be a moment for a profound apology. And in that event, I can tell you I will not fall short.
1: And has President Obama's meeting with the Dalai Lama endangered US-Chinese relations?
4: contrast to Nicolas Sarkozy the French president's meeting with the Dalai Lama or Angela Merkel the German chancellor's meeting a few years ago those did have effect and the Chinese really punished those countries with withheld contracts but I think in the case of the U.S. there's too many other important elements to the relationship.
1: Let's start with the eurozone. Joining me is the FT's Brussels bureau chief, Peter Spiegel, who was at the very fraught emergency summit where Eurozone leaders struggled to come up with a new package to save the Greek economy from implosion. So, Peter, they've now done this deal. It's mind-boggling complex, lots of elements in it. But what's your general feeling? Is it enough to stave off economic disaster in Greece?
2: I think we stave off economic disaster for the short term because Greece will have financing for the near future. Europe and the IMF has stepped up to that. The financing gap which was going to emerge in March 2012 has been filled. The problem is this huge debt burden that Greece has, 350 billion euros, they're reducing it, but they're reducing it a very, very small amount. And this has always been the long-term concern for Greece that we're at about 160% of GDP debt levels in Greece. Almost everyone who's a serious economist who looks at that says that is unsustainable. There is no way unless Greece becomes the next China in terms of economic growth that they're going to be able to pay off that debt. And I don't think we've solved that, and they're going to have to take another whack at it somewhere down the line. I think that's inevitable.
1: So Greece has a slightly less onerous debt burden, but still probably too onerous. And also they, as I understand it, still have an ongoing financing gap. I mean, they're still running deficits of... Close to ten percent.
2: Yes. Yes. And that is why we saw two, three weeks ago, the Greek government passed a series of austerity measures, twenty-eight billion euros. Every time the IMF and the EU go back almost every quarter to look to see if they're hitting the targets, they're keep missing the targets because they're supposed to be able to bring down their debt and deficit levels on a trajectory that becomes sustainable, where the annual deficits are about three percent, which is what they think are sustainable. At some point they have to have a net surplus because they have to start paying off this debt. So the problem is they reset the trajectory every time Greece keeps missing it. They have to ask for more austerity measures. Not only that, now they're asking Greece to sell off portions of the country to start paying off debt. So the question is, at what point do we say this is just completely not going to be on track and have a proper default where we just say to bondholders, there's no way you're going to be repaid. Let's do a real haircut, not this little twiddling around the edges, which is basically what happened, and just say 50% of what Greece owes, sorry, you're not going to get paid. Let's do a good old-fashioned Argentine-style default. Greece is cut off of the markets forever, but Europe and the IMF will step in and help with the financing. Is that your sense of where you think we will end up? Even in private conversations we do have with very senior officials, everyone acknowledges that's going to happen at some point. The logic has always been with Greece, let us push off the day of reckoning as long as we can. Now, Europeans have been criticized for that. Why are you pushing off the inevitable? All you're doing is moving debt from private bondholders to now governments because they're bailing them out. Do it now. Let's get the private bondholders to pay. I must say the argument against that is is not an illogical one. We are currently in the middle of a crisis. The economies are are only just now beginning to grow. We could see a double-dip recession. Why do we want to take a whack at private bondholders right now? Let's wait three, four years when hopefully we see an economic growth situation, we see your bank stabilize, then do the big default destabilizing event when the global financial system can take the shock. The problem is what we've done yesterday is in some sort of half measure. We've done neither fish nor foul. We have not said we will fund you forever, and we have not said we're going to do a big old default. We've said we're going to do a little bit of default, so we're going to panic everyone, but not get much gain out of it.
1: Now, you use that phrase, panic everyone, and that's, of course, the key next question, because I noticed that the rhetoric coming out of Brussels was Greece is very much an exceptional case because they want to warn it off and make sure that this doesn't spread to Ireland, Portugal, far less Italy, Spain. What's your assessment of that?
2: I think there is the risk of contagion. This was the primary demand of Jean-Claude Trichet, the president of the European Central Bank. He, um, more so than almost every other leader in that room, was panicked about this very point. A, because European Central Bank owns a lot of debt of peripheral countries right now.
1: This very point being no selective default, which yes. they've now agreed on. Yes.
2: First he said, no selective default. Then he said, all right, if you have just are hell-bent on selective default, you must state as clearly as possible that Greece is a one-off and it's never going to happen again because this is the fear. Once you make that intellectual breach that a default is possible, if I'm a bondholder in Italy, I all of a sudden say, oh boy, if you're going to do that for Greece, you're going to do that for Ireland and, and Portugal who are currently in bailouts and you're going to do it for Spain and Italy if they all of a sudden are... Italy is at 120% of GDP? 120% of GDP, the, the second highest in the Eurozone to Greece. So it is, it is the highest debt level in the Eurozone next to Greece. So It is not illogical. There's been a lot of ranting and raving at the rating agencies of late. Moody's in particular has downgraded both Irish and Portuguese debt for this very reason. They said, look, the fundamentals on on Portugal and Ireland have always been tough, and we've been looking at that. But suddenly we see European leaders are making this intellectual leap. We have to downgrade because if you're a bondholder, you have to think about this change in attitude in Brussels. So that has begun to infect, and that's why we've seen the borrowing costs on all these countries go up. What remains to be seen is whether that continues there's a balance here the balance is we have seen finally after months and months and months of just the most agonizing painful public discussions that you've ever seen any international leaders I mean for my 20 years in journalism ever seen that is now done they have come to a decision and, and what markets hate more than anything else is uncertainty so finally boom we have we have certainty the markets can wake up the next morning and say I can now evaluate and make decisions based on what is now known knowns on the other side is we have finally for the first time literally in 60 years had a developed country default on its bonds, which is a major, major event. And the markets may one day say, okay, we have certainty. And then a week later say, oh God, you know what? This really freaks me out. I am going to now pull my bonds, my investment out of Italy, out of Spain, and put it in German bonds and U.S. treasuries in safe havens. And boy, that is the disaster scenario because then Italy starts seeing its borrowing costs go to six, seven, eight percent. There is not enough money in the entire world to bail out Italy. I mean its debt level is so large it's almost ten percent of the entire global GDP. How do you bail out Italy? It's just not gonna happen. And that's when you start really talking about the end of the euro as it is. And and that's that's what everyone's very panicked about.
1: Peter, thank you very much. Let's move to the UK now and the situation of the Prime Minister, David Cameron.
3: Of course I regret and I am extremely sorry about the furore it has caused. With 20, 20 hindsight and all that has followed, I would not have offered him the job and I expect that he wouldn't have taken it. But you don't make decisions in hindsight, you make them in the present. You live and you learn and believe you me, I have learnt. I have an old-fashioned view about innocent until proven guilty. <laughs> If it turns out I've been lied to, that would be a moment for a profound apology. And in that event, I can tell you I
1: will not fall short. That was David Cameron making an emergency statement to MPs on Wednesday about the News of the World phone hacking scandal, and in particular about his decision to hire Andy Coulson, a former editor of the News of the World, as his chief press spokesman. Joining me on the line from Westminster's, the FT's chief political correspondent, Elizabeth Rigby. Elizabeth, Cameron came back early from his important trip to South Africa to try to stave off this political crisis. Do you think he's done enough now to avert the immediate political threat to him?
5: He is becoming like a political escapologist, really. I mean, after the debate, he went to face his 1922 backbench committee and was greeted with slamming of the desk and applause for what his MPs thought was a, a knockout performance in the chamber. One MP, Sir Peter Tapsell, actually said of the Prime Minister, or the Prime Minister accounted it, that he'd never known a Prime Minister to be so adept at getting into scrapes and then so adept at getting out of them. So he had a thumbs up from his party on Wednesday, so he definitely has averted sort of short-term danger.
1: But is there still a long-term danger because there are these court cases and one doesn't know what people like, say, Andy Coulson, his former press secretary, may say in future?
5: This is exactly his problem. If you think about the Coulson connection, at the moment you could say it's an irritant, it's like a rash, but it's not the plague, it hasn't killed him off. But I think what will happen over the next year, two years, is that as the police investigation into phone hacking at News of the World continues... The danger is is that there will be this gradual drip, drip, drip of bad news about Andy Coulson. He could end up in the dock in court, and if that happened, it's going to be extremely damaging for Cameron because his links with this guy are going to be brought up again and again and again.
1: It does seem like a massive error of judgment to have appointed him, and what could he have been thinking?
5: It clearly was an error of judgment and actually when people in the lobby have talked about it, some of Cameron's advisors, what they say of this is that Cameron is a very loyal guy and once he has a team around him, he doesn't trust many people and once he does trust them, he's loath to let them go. And so what some of the people around him suggest is that he didn't want to let Coulson go and maybe he did hold on to him for too long. I mean, maybe someone that was a bit more ruthless about it would have cut him loose certainly back in the autumn of last year when that New York Times investigation came out. But again, of course, Nick Clegg, his deputy, was advising him never to take him into Downing Street in the first place when he assumed the office of Prime Minister last May.
1: So, to summarise, how much of a distraction is this from the business of government? He has important challenges, the economy is still struggling, chaos in the Eurozone. Is he still able at the moment to do his job properly?
5: I think he is probably very thankful that we are now at summer recess because the train that is phone hacking has temporarily been stopped certainly in parliamentary terms, although the story is clearly running in the corporate world as to how News Corp copes with this. For Cameron, as you said, there's a huge crisis in the Eurozone. We're going to have growth figures out next week which are going to suggest the economy's flatlining at best. And therefore he does have really important domestic issues. And actually, I think beyond... The Westminster Village, probably the public are much more concerned about the economy and the Eurozone. But my worry for him is that as we go back into the autumn, this phone hacking scandal is going to just be a a really unwelcome distraction from other more important business.
1: Elizabeth, thank you very much indeed. Let's move to our final topic for today. The summit of the Association of Southeast Asian Nations took place against a background of escalating tensions about territorial disputes in the South China Sea. And the week had already got off to a tense start with China criticising Barack Obama for the American president's meeting with the Dalai Lama. Serena Tarling spoke to the FT's bureau chief in Beijing, Jamil Andalini, and she began by asking him whether President Obama's meeting with the Dalai Lama could really damage relations between China and the United States.
4: I think China come out with a lot of storm and fury over this, but they always do that when any leader of any country meets with the Dalai Lama. I think in this case that it's unlikely to have a lasting effect on Sino-US relations. I think in contrast to, say, Nicolas Sarkozy, the French president's meeting with the Dalai Lama, or Angela Merkel, the German chancellor's meeting with the Dalai Lama a few years ago, those did have effects on the relationship, and the Chinese really punished those countries with withheld contracts and things like that. But I think in the case of the U.S., there's too many other important elements to the relationship. And I think that it's also a tradition for the U.S. president to meet with the Dalai Lama. So although the Chinese will make a huge fuss about it, I think that it's unlikely to have a lasting effect. We've also recently seen disputes not only between the US and China, but also with the Philippines and Vietnam over clashes in the South China Sea. What are the key issues at stake here? Well, the key issue is that all of these countries that surround the South China Sea, the Philippines, Vietnam, Malaysia, China, Brunei, Taiwan, these countries and territories all have claims to parts of the South China Sea. Now, China's claim is the biggest. And it's most of the South China Sea is what they claim. Some of their claims go even right up very near to the coastlines of all those other countries. So there are these big overlapping historical claims to territory. Now, 80% or so of China's seaborne oil goes through the South China Sea. Plus, under the seabed, there's supposed to be a lot of mineral resources, oil and other resources. In the past, China hasn't really had the naval power to assert its claims, but now with the growth of its economy and the very fast growth of its military budget, China is now getting into a position where it can start to assert more of its claims. So this is very worrying for all the other neighbors in the region, and there are fears that it could spark a, a real arms race as other countries, the smaller countries, try and beef up their military capabilities to ward off Chinese claims. Now the reason the US is involved is that the US say they have vital national interest in keeping the South China Sea open to shipping and to their military and very interestingly we're starting to see the US come down on the side of the Philippines and Vietnam. China's becoming more assertive, more aggressive in the region. The US is also talking a lot now in the last couple of years about re engaging in the region and has made a number of offers to mediate on the side of the smaller Southeast Asian countries. Is this likely to be a flashpoint at the ASEAN summit? Absolutely. Last year we saw it was the main flashpoint. You had a shouting match, apparently according to people in in the room, there was a shouting match between US Secretary of State Hillary Clinton and uh, Chinese Foreign Minister Yang Jiechi. In that shouting match, according to FT sources. The Chinese foreign minister thumped the table and said that China was a big country and all the other countries were small countries and they should just get used to it. And there's a very interesting, quite telling insight into China's foreign policy concept that it's developing. And it's a big change from just two or three years ago when, when actually Yang Jiechi was on the record publicly saying that China does not differentiate between big and
1: small countries. That was Jamil Andolini talking to Serena Tarling. And that's it for this week. My thanks to Peter Spiegel in the studio, to Elizabeth Rigby in Westminster, and to Jamil Andolini in Beijing. World Weekly is produced by LJ Filatrani. Till next week, goodbye.
0: For more downloads, go
1: to ft.com forward slash podcasts.
0: Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant.